We are live. Back in action. Actually, I podcast in full effect. What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome. File on in. Get yourself comfortable. Just loading everything up over here. We're going live on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. Welcome one, welcome all. Thank you all so much for joining us on this ongoing journey through the wonder of meaning making. And in this current series, we've been covering John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We are now on episode 49, covering Corbin and Young, or Jung, however you wish to pronounce that name. All right, looks like we're alive in all of the places. I'm going to share us up on the socials. How's everybody doing out there? Yeah. Go ahead and throw some comments down wherever you may be. We'll try and keep up with y'all. DJ's on YouTube, and I'm covering us on Facebook and Twitch over here. Yeah. Yeah, how's everybody feeling out there? Say hello if you're in the room already. I'll be in the chat for a bit, at least until my phone dies. Yeah, how was your week, man? You're just finishing a two-day fast. You were telling uh, me about it's, we it's, just had a great dinner. I'm going to try for the week, and if I still feel good, I'm going to go for two weeks. But it's a, it's a what, 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 20, 20 hours off, four hours on. But really, it's you know, one meal and then snacking. Uh, and then trying to get in shape because I'm tired of being a fat body and feeling like garbage. So, you know, that stuff. Hey, man, that's good motivation, though, ain't it? Yeah, well, good work making it happen, man. I know it ain't easy. I got the total gym and some other stuff downstairs, so might as well use it. Nice. it just sits there gathering dust. So, isn't it funny how we'll do these kinds of things? We'll make that initial move to get something we know is going to be good right. for us, but then the next step of actually, you know, taking it on is a whole other game. You just got to start without even thinking about it. Your mind will sit there and convince you of fifteen other things you could do instead. Right. You know. Uh, and the hard part about this, too, is it's not just a regular fast, but elimination of all sugars that, and uh, most starches. You can't get away from eating starch. I mean, like onions have starch. Um, mm. You know, uh, collard greens have starch. Or not starch, but carbohydrates. Right. Um, you know, uh, beef has carbohydrates. Everything has carbohydrates. But, you know, it's just trying to limit the amount that you take in it's you oh, know, yeah. complex carbohydrates aren't as bad as the ultra refined kinds of carbs that we find in our modern diets yeah you you want more of your carbohydrates to be you know fiber and you don't need you know ridiculous amounts of fiber in your diet you know i've, I've been looking up the nutritional values of different foods and then how much you know the average person is supposed to consume and all that stuff and you know with the amount of collard greens we ate earlier um each portion had about um, a quarter of all the fiber that you need in your day. So, and that wasn't a lot of greens mixed in with those onions. So that's no. You know, those collard greens were good uh, though. Oh uh, uh, yeah, but mm. sugar cravings were real yesterday. Though. <laughs> oh man. Oh, I believe it, man. It's, it's like, funny yeah, how when you stop eating sugar, man, yeah. you start craving it like a drug, like it's nicotine or something. Yeah, luckily uh, today I I feel fine. I um. Nice. You know, I had my coffee without any sweetener in it. So, and I'm not doing the fake sugars either because I don't, I don't, I don't do that. That stuff is not. No, don't good mess for with you. that stuff, fam. That stuff is no bueno. Even like you know the aspartame, 
Well, like and that. even stuff like stevia Super and other stevia. extracts and oh, stuff. Oh, stevia is just doesn't even taste that good. It though. tastes like crap. Yeah. But it's, it can, you can find blends sometimes. Of I mean, you cook an onion long enough, it goes sweet. Uh, right. Asparagus is well, sweet. the peppers and, and the onions peppers. and uh, collard greens you made were nice and sweet. Yeah. And that's a more complex carbohydrate, too. The body's got to do more work to break it down. Yeah. So, yeah. We've been trying out here, changing ourselves one little bit at a time, and I hope y'all are out there doing the same too. You know, we got to grow in this world, got to adapt. Yeah, and it's you know it's. I, I, so one thing about me, and I don't know if we've discussed this on air, is I used to be like really into working out and like powerlifting and crap, and I'm starting to you know now that I'm working out again, it's like oh yeah okay got to be careful with that because it is like a drug. I mean. Like, through high school, I had a weight bench in my room and lifted most of the day kind of stuff. So it, it is an addictive thing, but it feels good. You know, like, mm -hmm. hurts in the moment. Sometimes it feels like, like, yeah, I was doing, like, some extended crunch sets. And when I stood up, uh, man, it was, like, this close to full-on cramp in my abdomen. And I'm like, nope, don't do it. Push the belly out. Don't do it. Don't cramp on me because that's the worst, man, when you get one of those, like, core cramps. But mm -hmm. then after it was done, I'm like, oh, I'm actually pretty feel pretty good once it you know chilled out right you know it's nice. feels good it can that if you're you know you want to replace an addiction i guess working out is probably not the worst as long as you don't do the workout to the point where your muscles start eating itself what do they call that rhabdo or whatever oh yeah yeah yeah. and then you start peeing it out and then your kidneys turn to crap and then uh Ooh, you that's die no good. if you go too far never so had that wanna... happen thankfully right yeah, yeah. yeah. Do we want to do a rehash of the last episode, or you want to just jump I on I think we should shoot on. Um, I don't have too much of it in my head, and I'm feeling a little, because it's day two of... I'm looking at Mr. Mark Mulvey's notes on episode 49 right now. Yeah, if there's anything that pops out specifically, I can, uh, to you, I can find my notes on them. That might help my, mm. my poor brain. The body's feeling better, but my brain feels like soup. <laughs> well, basically, in the last episode, I remember we talked about the divine double... And uh, rather than yeah. trying to create your truest self out of your current self through the having mode by trying to achieve and obtain things, they actually, you know, people like Jung and Corbin and others talked about trying instead for aspiration. Mm -hmm. So aspiring towards growth, towards so there's this idea of a divine double, which is like, say, your guardian self or the ultimate version of yourself at the end of time, like the ultimate ideal of what you could be actually exists. And that's your true self. And the self that you're inhabiting now must aspire to become one with that true self. And yeah. So that's a really cool non-logical like aspiration. So it's, it's mm -hmm. not, you know, aspiration isn't logical um, as far as, you know, um, you want to be, you know, like what he's saying in the last episode, you know, like you want to go to, uh, you know, an art appreciation class to learn how to appreciate art. But that means you already had a certain appreciation to begin with, to mm -hmm. aspire to appreciate art by going mm -hmm. to the class to learn how to appreciate art. Yeah. Um, and there's this, you know, and it's a, a frame shift as you go, mm -hmm. you know, opposed to, um, you know, um, 
because you don't appreciate art at first, but as as soon as you start taking on the mode of a, of appreciating art, somehow you paradoxically can trick yourself into a, a true moment. Of yeah. Well, being... Okay. So when it comes to the divine double, it's not this opposite or you know this other self mm -hmm. or something like that. It's it's, it's the, the highest example of yeah. what you can frame shift into. That's right. And and it's, it's ultimately like yeah. the truest self. Yeah. Um... Uh, something of pure shining phenomenon. Um, yeah, he, he'll he'll get into it better than I can. My brain is like complete mush at this point. That's all right. Yeah, so <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll read one paragraph real fast from Mark Mulvey's notes, cool. and let me actually I'll flip screen here real fast. That archetypes are not images; they are imaginary things you possess in your mind but as imaginal things that are leading you into the aspirational process of individuation. Systems of constraints, and now this is a quote from Verbeke, systems of constraints, virtual engines that regulate the self-organization of what is salient to us. Think of the archetype much more adverbally than ab adjectively. Mm. So d very much more of a verb than an adjective. Mm. Yeah, and then there's the distinction between imaginary, like you're, you're mm -hmm. looking at it, and, imaginal. and then imaginal, which you're looking yeah. through it um, as if it was translucent or like your glasses. Because um. Jung was very, he had a lot to say. He very much would critique literalism and fundamentalism. And Jung talks about this self-organization process and these virtual engines as autopoetic, meaning they have life to them. Archetypes are the way the psyche makes itself as a living organism. He talks of the relationship between the ego and the self, and he capitalizes mm. self because he's referring more to the idea of the second sacred self, not the mere, not the more traditional self that people might associate with their personal beingness. Yeah, so uh, Corbin, um, at least the note here says, Cor you know, Corbin has a statement, the angel, you know, you see it as the angel, and then there's this, oh no, because mm. we're looking at the angel imaginary opposed to imaginal. So mm. you're looking through this lens of what you want to be, you know, the, the angel, if you will, the best, the best potential mm -hmm. that you can and be. And so the imaginary is more and fantastical, more fantasy, and the imaginal is more like utilizing a symbol to see through the symbol. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, kind of yeah. like, you know, how, like a, um, like an archetype within a story. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at that archetype. You know, you may be in the story looking at the man and his sword and him fighting the dragon, but you're looking through the archetype and how it, say, applies to yourself. Yes, even though that's that quite non-logical as well. Us, gives us yeah. an example that we can yeah. attempt to live according to. Yeah, aspire to. Aspire towards, yes, you know? yes. Um, yes, because that more traditional self that people might associate with their own personal beingness, that is the more narcissistic sense of the world. The ego is the archetype of the conscious mind, while the self is more akin to Plato's archetype of the good mm -hmm. and the principle of autopoiesis itself, self-making beings that we are. The dialogue between the ego and the self is what Jung called the axis mundi, the axis of the world. The ego individuates through its dialogues with the sacred second self. I think that's enough for us to jump on in, guys. Yeah.
So we're going to do that. We're jumping on in. It's John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis that we are covering here on Meaning Making 101. If you guys appreciate what we're doing here at all, you'd like to see where all of this goes, make sure that you like and you subscribe. And, you know, throw down some comments if you have any questions or anything that you'd like to say at all. We welcome dialogue. And make sure that you give some love to John Verveke as well. John has done a tremendous amount of work releasing this 50 lecture series and then everything that comes after it. So definitely go and check out John's channel and give him some love as well. All right, y'all, we are jumping on in. This is John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, episode 49 on Corbin and Young. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we followed Heidegger into the depths uh, where we encountered uh, Eckhart and uh, this non-teleological uh, relationship uh, to the play of being and that led us very directly into Corbin and Corbin's core argument that Gnosis, as where we've been using it, <clears throat> relates centrally, the ability to engage in this serious play relates centrally to the imagination. <clears throat> but Corbin is making use of this term in a new way. He makes the distinction between the imaginary, which is how we typically use the word the imagination, and mental images in my head that are, are only subjective and have no uh, objective reality. <clears throat> and the imaginal, uh, the imaginal which mediates between the abstract intelligible world and the concrete sensible world and transjectively uh, mediates between the subjective and the objective and that is not done statically. All of this mediation <coughs> and mutual affordance is done in an ongoing transformative uh, transframing and that the symbol captures all of this. And then I wanted to bring out uh, Corbin's core symbol and it's a core symbol that relates directly to Gnosis because in Gnosis, in this transformative participatory knowing, and this goes up to the core of Heidegger's notion of Dasein, the being whose being is in question, we right, have to see self-knowledge and knowledge of the world as inextricably bound up together. And in order to do that, we are pursuing <coughs> Corbin's central symbol, the angel. Uh, which, of course, is immediately off-putting to many people, uh, including myself, but I've been trying to get a way of articulating how Corbin is incorporating both Heidegger and Persian Sufism, Neoplatonic Sufism, um, into this uh, understanding of the symbol. <clears throat> and I recommended that we take a look at the work of, first of all, of Stang, the historical work, showing how throughout... Um, the uh, ancient Mediterranean world and in, up and through the Hellenistic period and beyond up until the period of uh, easily uh, 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 pseudo-Dionysus around you know, the 5th century uh, of the Common Era. Uh, there's the pursuit of the divine double. And then the idea is one that is deeply transgressive of our cultural cognitive grammar of decadent romanticism where we have a we are born with our true self that nearly needs to express itself, a la Rousseau, um, and uh, that the core virtue is authentic authenticity, which is being 
right, true to the true self uh, that you have, uh, you possess, rather than, for example, a Socratic model in which the true self is something towards which you are constantly aspiring. And then I recommended trying to make this, so, and what's the transgressive mythology? Sorry, the transgressive mythology is that the self that I have now is not my true self. My true self is my divine double. Uh, this is, right, something that is superlative to me. It is, not, it, is, it is bound to me. It is my double, right? It is bound to me, but it is superlative to me. It is both me and not me. It's me as I'm meant to be, as I should be, and that the project Right? The existential project is not one of expressing a self that you have, but of transcending to become a self that is ecstatically ahead of you in an important way. And then I pointed out that for many of you, this would still be sort of like, okay, but I get the transgression, but I still find this notion of a divine double unpalatable. Maybe for some of you, you don't, uh, but nevertheless, I think there is an important way by picking up on, like by asking the question, why did so many people for so long believe in this so deeply? Picking up on the question of what's going on there and focusing on the, this aspirational process. And this takes us back into work that, that was core to the discussion I uh, made about Gnosis and has had a resounding impact at various places uh, throughout uh, this series, which is L.A. Paul's work on transformative experience, and then somebody from, who's from the same school, influenced by Paul, um, having a, a, a different view, whereas Paul is more, her, her transformations are more like insight. Uh, Agnes Callard's notion of aspiration is much more developmental, but I argue that they can be, I think, readily reconciled together if you see development as a, a link uh, sequence of, of, of insights that bring about qualitative change in your competence. So we were zeroing in on this, right, I'm using L.A. Paul and Agnes Callard to triangulate into this relationship of aspiration. And picking up, first of all, on Callard's important point that is not addressed, and this is an important point uh, by L.A. Paul, the, the, the deep connections between aspiration and rationality. That rationality is itself a rash, is an aspirational process. And if we make the process by which we become rational itself not a rational or irrational process, uh, we will get into serious, um, a, a position that is seriously self-undermining. Similarly, if the way in which you become uh, wise does not involve sort of wise acts and behavior, if the process itself is not itself wise, you're going to get into um, all kinds of difficulties. If it's not in some sense a rational process, again, last time I reminded you how broadly, but I think also deeply, I'm using the term rational. Or being educated. I mean, we, we make ourselves better, maybe even more rational or wiser by going through an education. But education, at least a liberal education, is a deeply aspirational process. If that itself is not part of what makes us rational, is that if it's not itself a rational process, then of course our rationality is again being undermined in an right, self-contradictory fashion. So the basics of this argument is if we take, if we do not understand a kind of rationality that uh, Callard calls proleptic rationality, that's the rationality of aspiration, the rationality that allows you, right, that is um, the rationality that emerges in education, that emerges in the cultivation of rationality, that emerges in the cultivation of uh, of wisdom, then a lot of human behavior is right. Impro is not going to be called 
rational, and it's going, and that is going to render our notion of rationality, um, as I've said, um, self-contradictory and self-undermining in some very fundamental ways. And so again, we see the rejoining of right love and reason that was originally uh, uh, talked about uh, so deeply in, in Plato. So now we've come back to this problem. I, I gave you the example of somebody in a liberal education, um, and this is Collard's example, right? Here's the self at this time and the self at this time. And something I brought out that Keller doesn't, but it's important because it's a, it's, a, it's a concise way of talking about the relationship between them and that there isn't a direct inferential uh, relationship uh, between these, which is non-logical identity. Right? This is part and parcel. Like, th think about what I said earlier, how do we broaden the notion of rationality outside of logic. If Callard is right, and we have to include rationality, proleptic rationality, in our model of rationality, and involves this non-logical identity, then of course we're, we're stepping beyond sort of a purely logical understanding of rationality. Yet again, for yet another reason. Okay, so what's the problem here? Well, the problem is the problem of non-logical identity. So we, I don't appreciate, always remember both meanings of that term too deeply, uh, and, and they're interwoven, the two sides of aspiration. I deeply understand it, and I deep, I'm deeply grateful for it. I value it, right? I don't appreciate classical music. I don't have the taste for it. I don't get it. And I want to be somebody who appreciates classical music. Now, if I want to, if I do that because I want to satisfy a current desire I have, a current value I have, like I, I value impressing my friends, or I value attracting members of the opposite sex, or something like that, then of course I'm not actually aspiring because this person doesn't appreciate classical music because it impresses their friends, or because it helps them in their dating life, or for, for whatever other reason. They appreciate it for a perspectival and participatory knowing that S1 doesn't have. That's the point. The appreciation that S2 has is bound to perspectival and participatory knowing of which S1 is ignorant. And that, of course, is one of the central points, who you remember, of L.A. Paul's argument about transformative experience. So it looks like there's something, right? There's a fundamental discontinuity here. Okay, now to bring out the problem that we need to, to sort of resolve and, bring back and tie this back to the notion of the divine double, I want to talk about a, uh, a way in which Callard shows us how this is problematic as we try to talk about it. And she makes uh, use of the work of uh, Strassen, Gideon Strassen, and he talks about a paradox of, uh, of self-creation. Right? Now Strassen points out that for self-creation, and doesn't this look like self-creation? Here's a self-creating itself, right? For self-creation to be too true, to be truly an instance of self and creation, sort of emphasizing both sides of that double form, two things are needed. One requirement, right, 
is a continuity requirement. There has to be something deeply continuous between S1 and S2. Because, right, if they are not the same self, then it's not an act of self-creation, right? If they're not the same self, it's not an act of self-creation. So that's the continuity requirement. And so I'm going to represent it like this, right? S1 equals S2. So what this means is if, like, if S1 is hit by a motorcycle and their brain is damaged and, right, and they act and behave in a different way, that's not an act of self-creation. That is not an act of self-creation. S1 has to be totally responsible for S2, or else it's not an act of self-creation, putting an emphasis on the self. Okay, but now let's shift to the creation side, right? Which is that there has to be real novelty between them, or else there's no creation involved. If S1 just develops a skill or ability they already have, that is not real novelty. That is just more of the same. That's quantitative development, not qualitative development. So, right, if all that happens is S1, you know, improves a skill, uh, you know, deepens their capacity to uh, uh, acquire something that they already value, etc. That, right, is not real novelty. So real novelty means there has to be a fundamental difference between S1 and S2. Now what Strassen does with this, right, is he points out, notice how, right, it, S1 and S2 for the continuity requirement have to be equal, but the real novelty means there has to be a real deep difference between S1 and S2, right, or it's not creation. And, the, and so what he argues is he argues that self-creation is paradoxical. In fact, the point he's trying to make is it's self-contradictory. There can be no such thing as self-creation, right? We back. Hey, welcome back, everybody. So we were talking about that, uh, what's it, Straussen or... Strassman is arguing that this, you know, there's two requirements for self-creation, continuity uh, requirement, so it has to be from the same self, and real novelty, uh, which is uh, qualitative not, uh, development, not quantitative, so not, uh, you know, the same old new events happening. Um, and there has to be a fundamental difference between S1 and S2. He argued that uh, this is contradictory, and therefore there is no self-creation. Um, and the idea that uh, manipulation of predicate logic does not get us to modal logic. So you know you're you can't take weak logic and logic it logic it all the way up to strong logic. And real novelty must come from the outside of the first self. Um, so therefore, it is not a, a, an act of self-creation. Um, so you cannot infer yourself from S1 into S2. So that's uh, Straussen's argument um, in, in a nutshell. We'll go over it, but that's basically where we were, and we'll get into it somewhere around there. Yet again, sorry, guys. You know, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, in it's real life. I, I did get a message on uh, Facebook that it looks like the feed is a little bit slow. That might be why that's happening. Oh no, there it is on Twitch. It says unstable. 
poor network connection detected. Uh, yeah, that might be my end. We're getting windstorms. So we'll try as best as we can, guys. Yep, just saying. Roll with us. We've got uh, pretty good fiber optic around here, but it's only for uh, the government and the military as far as the new line that they pop through the area. <laughs> oh, no Going from the... Um, uh, from the what is that the border uh, border security complex all the way up to I guess NCTC probably wow and then further up really yeah because yeah they they spent a good long time putting down uh, fiber optics so if you're digging in in certain areas you got to be careful because you cut that line you get a bunch of big helicopters coming <laughs> hey <laughs> yeah all right Shaw we're gonna jump back in this is John Bravakis awakening. Series episode 49 on Corbin and Young. Then make it into S2, but if it comes from outside of S1, it is foreign and strange and right, and therefore it right is not an act of self-creation. What that shows, voters' idea about you can't infer a stronger logic from a weaker logic, and it goes back to a point we've made before. There is no inferential way. There is no way you can sort of infer yourself from S1 to S2. And this, of course, is part of Kierkegaard's whole point about the leap and the leap of faith. The leap of faith is to leap into a process of development that is going to put you through this kind of qualitative change in your identity. But Strassen makes this very problematic by saying, right, this makes absolutely no sense. All right. And so we're, we're caught between two things. Either we're caught, we, we, we can break this by saying, right, um, there is ultimately no self. We could go rapidly empiricist. I'm just a blank slate, and all that happens is stuff from the outside changes me. And then I, 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 I go for the novelty, but there's no underlying self. Or I can just do the continuity requirement. I can become sort of a Rousseauian romantic, and myself is, myself is identical throughout. Right? And all I'm doing is expressing what was already within myself. That's all that's happening. You see, empiricism and romanticism choose one of the two over the other. And, and what Strassen says is you, you have to make such a choice because self-creation is itself uh, self-contradictory. Callard says this is all a mistake. And I agree with her. She argues that this is both the empiricism and the romanticism, at least the Rousseauian decadent romanticism, right, is not, right, is not adequate or accurate of our experiment of developmental change. What breaks this, I argue, helping her, I believe, is that the relationship between S1 and S2 is one of non-logical identity. Something, of course, we practice, the narrative practice hypothesis, by engaging in narrative all the time and making ourselves into temporally extended selves that have a non-logical identity through time and through development. So, I think both the, the romantic expressionism and the empirist, empiric, the empiricist, you know, writing upon the blank slate, do not capture what's happening between S1 and 2. It's not that S1 is just changed randomly into S2 from the outside. Neither is it the case that S1 
simply makes S2. The first self does not make it. Right? It's, not, it's neither pure passivity nor pure activity. This, of course, is why I've continually emphasized the notion of participation. We'll see how Barfield is trying also to step above both you know, making and active, completely active making and, and completely passive reception in his notion of participation. A better way of describing the relationship is S1 does not receive nor make S2, but participates in S2's emergence. S2 emerges out of S1 to the point that S1 disappears into S2. It's an emergence. We participate in an emergence. So, aspiration is Collard's name for that process by which S1 participates in the emergence of S2 out of S1 such that S1 has disappeared into S2. Self1 has disappeared into, has become S2. So, Callard now reformulates the problem that remains. Once we acknowledge this, there is a problem that remains because it again thwarts our usual cognitive cultural grammar. What's the problem that remains? Well, here's the problem. S1, in some important sense, causes S2. My actions now are necessary and perhaps um, in some important sense sufficient for setting forth a, a, a course of development that is going to result in S2. Right? But although S1 is therefore temporally prior, it's before S2, right? In the, in the arrow of causation, the opposite is the case, normatively. S1 normatively depends on S2. All of S1's actions only make sense, can only be justified once S2 comes into existence. Because only S2 appreciates the music. Only S2 is rational. Only S2 un can understands and justifies the value of rationality, the value of the classical music. So although S1 causes S2 and temporally prior, S1 is normatively dependent on S2. In terms of normativity, S1 is, right, is not primary. It's secondary to S2. The first self, right, all, everything that the first self is doing ultimately only makes sense when the second self has come into existence. It's only after the aspirational transformation that S1's behavior is can be made sense of, can be justified, can be understood. It's interesting because the state that justifies S1's action is the state of S1 having disappeared into and through the emergence of S2 because only S2 
understands and appreciates rationality, understands and appreciates classical music, understands and appreciates what it is to be a parent, understands and appreciates what it is to be a spouse. Good place to stop. All right, so for anyone that's still with us or just joining, we're going to do a quick rehash of everything that we just learned. So we are discussing the prolectic rationality, the rationality of aspiration and all the problems that come with it. Yes, because rationality itself, we find, is in and of itself an aspirational process. In fact, rationality can't... So we must broaden our sense of rationality beyond logic. There must be a process of affirmation, self-checking in that process. If we don't have a proleptic rationality the kind that comes through the encouragement of wisdom, then we can experience self-contradiction and be undermining the process of self-realization. Yeah. And so that beyond the logical rationality um, and this non-logical identity, so S1, your self one, your state one, um, is only one half of aspiration. It's the understands half. It understands. And the S2 is the appreciate half. So that's the perspectival participatory, um, and th that S1 does not have itself. Mm. Mm. Um, so Strauss, in, in, the in his paradox of self-creation, he says that for self-creation to be truly an instance, that's for self-creation to be truly an instance of self-creation, there must be, uh, there needs to be two, two requirements, continuity, so it has to be the mm. same self over time, so S1 must be totally in control of S2, or else it is not the yes. same self. And yes. then there's real novelty, the uh, qualitative now development, not a quantity of things that happen. Mm -hmm. But um, an actual growth mm -hmm. process yeah. that's happening. It's not just obtaining things and skills, but an actual transformative process. So there is a paradox built into this process of self-creation, S1 being self-1, who we are now, S2 being this ultimate version of self that we aspire towards. Or just the next, you know. Or the next, right? Yeah. Yes, the next stage of one's growth, perhaps. And the appreciation of S2, uh, the appreciation S2 has is bound up in this perspectival and participatory relationship that S1 is unaware of. Mm-hmm. So you can't have one without the other. It must be something continuous between the two, like you were saying there. Mm -hmm. If it's not the same self, there can be no process of aspiration. So it's got to be that the S1 and the S2 self are the same, but we've got to find a way around this paradox mm -hmm. because it can't be an, a continuity argument alone and it can't be a real novelty argument alone either. So Strassen argues that this idea is contradictory. Um, right. Therefore, there is no self-creation. Um, mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, uh, the logicking of weak logic does not create strong logic, right? You can't use something within it, within the, say, logic to make better logic. It, so it... Mm -hmm. There is nothing, I guess, his argument is there is there's something always coming from outside that makes the change. Therefore, it is not self-creation, right? It's not S1 that's doing it alone. Yeah, that's, so that's real right. novelty in his argument is that 
something must come from outside of the self oneself mm-hmm. and is there, not an aspect of self creation. There must be a leap of faith. Yeah, well, that's where that, you know, that idea of leaping in um, will help with this, you know, because the qu- there's two questions. Am I a blank slate, which is the empir- uh, empiricist notion? And mm-hmm. then there is the, you know, or am I just, you know, expressing my true self out onto the world as I go? The romantics notion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, Collard, she uh, d- doesn't feel that either of these questions are adequate. Um yeah, both empiricism and romanticism yeah, are not an ac- accurate of our experiential developmental change. Yeah, but narrative is one thing that fixes this non-logical development mm-hmm. um, through time. Well, you know, narrative is a good narrative has development through time, and the fact that you can put yourself in the shoes of the character, say, is very non-logical. You're not them. That, that arch- might not even actually exist, right? The archetypes, for instance, as symbols that we can see through yeah, and learn yeah. through that are beyond us. Yes, that are novelties outside of us that at the same time we still can relate with. Yeah. That's beautiful. So the relationship is one that we may practice through narrative, through that non-logical identity, as DJ was just noting. And it's not that S1, the self-one, is changed from the outside. It's, it's not merely a passive activity nor a pure activity it's a participatory activity it's a participatory relation as one does not receive or make us two but it emerges through aspiration to the point that self one disappears into self two yeah and and, well that makes sense or is absorbed by or transforms into yeah like if like if you so you stay start out doing something and you're a novice and then an apprentice, the novice mm, dissolves into the apprentice. The apprentice dissolves into the journeyman. The journeyman dissolves into the master. That's right. The master dissolves into being the teacher mm-hmm. and then dissolves away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so the one who is aspiring initially to learn how to do something is not the one that they end up becoming. Yeah, or any point, or, or really any point. Through, through activity though, alone. Yeah. Though the, the self is still the same self, it's not like... Um, there has to be the aspiration that, t- that brings it all together. Yeah, so basically, you know, it, it's... So thinking that, okay, well, S1 goes into S2 linearly through time, but mm-hmm. the, re- you know, the reasoning of everything S1 does is... Um, it is dependent on S2. On the emergence of S2. That's right. The, the imaginal yeah. relation with S2. Yeah. So S2 creates the normative value for S1, justifies S1's, you know, the, yeah. you know, like, oh, you said you wanted to be a doctor, but you failed. You know, well, <laughs> not doctor. So S1 is not. You, yeah. 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 So S1, self one causes self two. Though self one is before self two, temporally prior, the opposite of that, S one is normatively dependent on S two. All of S one's actions only make sense once S two comes into being existence. So this is what DJ was just noting. So it's it is only after that aspirational becoming that S two can be understood. Or S or that S one can can really S1 be understood. Yeah, and its relation with S two can be understood. Well, you know, before we had the idea of a student, um, you know, and the value of say students and students getting together and learn and all that stuff, there must have been 
well, there's the idea of the end, you know, the, end the idea of a master. The, yeah. yeah. Um, that then justifies all the actions of the student. Cause what's the student doing if not trying to become the master. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, inverse to time, but as far as ordering goes, but the normative order seems to be informed from S2 into S1. Yeah. It's, and that's normative dependence is what, uh, the term that Verveke used. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and this, this might all seem a little bit complex or opaque, but it's a very subtle notion. It's a very subtle way that subtle difference in how we orient ourselves towards reality that can bring us into and keep us more so in an aspirational mode where we are participating with this imaginal ultimate outcome in order to disappear into that outcome and and complete that circuit and it's almost like you know this this problem we have here of normative dependence it's like how do you how do you get well i guess without a lack of, uh, without a leap of faith if you will mm -hmm. how do you gain an understanding of s2 before s2 happens temporarily mm-hmm you know, because we are still, right. we don't see the end product first. We just yeah. don't. Yeah, you can't. You can't experience it. You either. won't know how much you really do actually appreciate classical music until after you've gone through the process of listening to it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like reading a crap review about a movie, you know, that's like, oh, the best movie ever, yada, 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 whatever. It's like, well, that's just a hope. Yeah. What's it's, the movie going to be? Yes, yeah, so you're letting go of. <laughs> the wanting to appreciate as uh, classical music enough to forget that part of yourself so that you can actually just experience it freshly yeah. and newly in that moment and without any preference sides yeah. of self in the way, you know? Well, and that's, that's that word, you know, appreciates, mm -hmm. you know, appreciating isn't really a having thing. It's a, it's a doing mm -hmm. experiencing thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, ultimately, a you know, a positive thing. I don't know. You could probably negatively appreciate things too. You know, I love hating on crap movies. It's you know, like you know, bad, yeah, bad eighties body horror movies and stuff. I I love crapping on it, but it's still you know, there's still love there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, if you haven't gotten into bad eighties body horror movies, oh man, they are oh, so yeah. cheesy yeah, and the, campy the and awful. But there's well, Evil the, Dead. The thing was good. But there's some like more B movie. The thing is like kind of it, yeah, it's, it's, on the it, upper it, echelon of B movies. Yeah, it's got a good story and good acting. Yeah. But you know, there's one like Society that's like just bad acting. Uh, I get what they're trying to talk at. You know, the nepotistic nature of you know uh, uh, wasp society. You know, white mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon people society. Mm -hmm. You know, particular. You know, like that kind of stuff. But body horror, weird. I don't know if it's aliens or maybe they're human. I think they're we're here before us they're the original humans and or at least that's what they say because they're upper high society wasp people mm. and i don't mean buzzing insects i mean you know the 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 class um right you know everybody dressed up real nice but weird and perverted underneath mm. yeah yeah uh man but yeah okay yeah so i love to rip those things apart i have an appreciation for ripping them apart i have a love for them i, I do appreciate those movies even though they're so <laughs> they're so bad <laughs> yeah but there's like it's, it's something ad admirable that they actually went through the trouble of making it anyway and... yeah and it's it's weird that you can 
develop an appreciation for something like that. Yeah, I yeah. didn't aspire to be an 80s body horror critic or anything like that. It just happened across, and I had the appreciation. And I guess my aspiration is to try to figure out what the core nugget of each one of those movies is. Like, I want to <laughs> know like, what, the, <laughs> what the writer, you know, was getting at. What were they thinking? Oh, man. Yeah, craziness. All right, Shaw, we're going to jump back in. Let's go. So this, this goes against our normal way of doing things, right? Because we've got, this is temporally prior, but this is normatively primary. Okay? So this is, the S1 is temporally prior, but S2 is normatively primary. And that it's where we find the justification, explanation, right, legitimation of the aspirational process, that the person that has become in S2. And that's weird for us, because normally the thing that is temporally prior and causes is also the thing that is the source of justification and explanation. Now, the temptation here, of course, is to be teleological, to think that in some sense S2 pre-exists us and causes S1. And I think that's partially what's coming out in the mythos of the divine double. Trying to deal with this really difficult way of thinking, an easy way of thinking about it is, well, the divine double pre-exists, it's already there, fully formed, and they're drawing me out teleological until I eventually become S1, right? But we, we've already, I've already argued last time and the time before and earlier on in the series that the, the, teleolog the teleological explanations are often thwarting us in important ways. And they're certainly thwarting um, what Heidegger was talking about. So let's try and do this a, a little bit more slowly. I want, I want to say S1 has the causal power, but S2 has the normative authority. So S1 has the causal power, but S2 has the normal authority. So how do we relate to the self to which we was, was aspire? So when I'm S1, and I'm aspiring to being more like Socrates, more rational, how do I now relate to this S2 that doesn't yet exist, but has authority over me? How do I, how do, I do that? Well, I sort of slipped it in there, right? I sort of slipped it in there uh, when I talked about right, aspiring to be like Socrates. So let's take this take step by step. I need, I'm relating to this, the aspired for self, the self that I aspire to. There's a non-logical identity between myself now and that self then. That self that I'm aspiring to is not logically accessible to me, and those two reasons are deeply, those two points are deeply connected. I can't infer my way to it, right? And my representation of that future self, my current representation to me now, has to afford me somehow tapping into this non-logical identity, this non-logical process, and that representation has to actually afford the transformation of me into the aspired to self. It has to actually help me become a more rational person. Now notice, of course, what this means. What kind of thing does this for me? And this is Corbin's point. 
It's a symbol, not in the imaginary sense, but in the imaginal sense. It's only a symbol that right, puts these two together in the right way. It's a kind of relationship that, right, between things that are non-logically identical. It is not something that is processed in a purely logical fashion. It is a representation that is participatory and it's supposed to help to actually afford you going through the transformative process. Now, let's add a little bit more. My representation of the aspired to self is it's a symbolic self. It's a symbolic self that I can internalize into my current self anagogically, right? This is, remember we talked about this. We become, we transcend ourselves by internalizing how other people's perspectives are being directed on us, right? So remember, Spencer internalizes my perspective so that he becomes metacognitive. The Stoic aspirant internalizes Socrates so that he can self-transcend and become more Socratic, right? So the symbolic self has to be internalized. And notice what's happening in internalization. Right? Internalization is something other than you, yet it, it becomes something that is completely identified as you, not just as an idea, Right? It becomes part of your metacognitive, reflective rationality in the case of internalizing Socrates. It becomes part of the very guts of the machinery of yourself. Why anagogically? Because what I'm doing right, is I'm internalizing this, symbol this symbolic self, and what it's doing is it's reordering my psyche so that I see different ways of being in the world, and as I inhabit those new ways of being in the world, they allow me to then re-internalize. Remember this, I internalize Socrates, and, right, right, and then I indwell the world in a more Socratic fashion, which allows me to better internalize Socrates so that I indwell the world in a more Socratic fashion, or perhaps for the Christian, right? Right? They, Christ comes to live within them until they live more Christ-like, so that Christ comes to live within them more. They, right? So there's more internalization, more indwelling, and that anagogic, that anagogic process takes off of its own accord. But it's not something that is, you're just pass, that's just passively happening to you, that coupled loop. It's not something you're just making happen. It's something that transcends receiving and making. It is participating. So, what we're doing is the, you have this symbolic self that internalizes other people's perspectives, others who live a way they make viable to you, the, the self you aspire to. But as you internalize them and that self is transformed, the world is anagogically transformed. Also, the world is playing an important role in this. So what I'm suggesting to you is the divine double is a mythos way of trying to capture this dynamic process, which we've discussed at length in this series. And what it does is it represents this process in kind of a linear narrative, and therefore it simplifies it into a simple kind of teleology. But there's a sense in which I think that teleology is overly simplistic. It's not capturing 
the participatory nature. The danger with the teleology, of course, is it tends to overemphasize the passive receptivity on the part of S1 in the face of S2. So, the divine double, I think what people were trying to say with the mythos of the divine double, the divi it, it, it's an imaginal symbol that affords the dynamic coupling of anagoge that allows you to participate in the act of self-creation. The act, or a better way of putting it, the act of aspiration. The divine double is you, but it's not you. It's, it's the advanced others that you've internalized into you, but that eventually become you. And so you live differently in that, in, in, in a new world. A way of being becomes viable to you. Right? It is the self you will be, not the self you are now. But if there is no inkling in your current self of, if there's no inkling of an identity possible and already beginning to be actualized between your current self and the future self, right? then of course it's not going to be part of that aspirational process. Here's you. Right? You're in this frame. Right? You're trying to move to this one. I'm going to separate them just so I have room to write. Normally this one is round and encompassing, so please allow me this just so I have room to write. Right? The divine double right, allows you to internalize from this more encompassing frame into your current frame. But that is simultaneously, and here's the shining in, here's the shining in through the divine double. Angels are glorious, they shine. Here's the shining through, right, into your frame. But that shining, that internalization, affords you moving towards indwelling that more expanded world. It engenders a transframing so that you can come to indwell this more expanded frame. The agent and the arena are simultaneously transformed. Here's Right, so the divine double shines the greater frame into the current frame, but it also right, draws you out by the way it withdraws into the more encompassing frame. It gives you a sense right, of right, the closing into your relevance, but the opening into the greater self. See the Gnosis? The divine double allows you to conform, conform in process to the very play of being itself. The way being is shining, but also withdrawing. And how that affords your radical tra self-transcendence, which is always a process also of becoming a greater or better self. So, what I'm suggesting to you, right, is that the divine double is a central example of the imaginal and that that is often represented in the mythos of angels. So we see how the divine double is transjective, how it's transframing, how it's integrating the abstract 
form or a concept of the better self. I have some abstract sense of the better self, but it's it's integrating that with my concrete, the concrete actions of causal actions of my current self. They're being the abstract and the concrete are being drawn together. Is the divine double subjective? No, that's not right. Is it part of just the objective part of my world? No, that's not right either. It's, it's deeply symbolic in nature and in action. And although it is a symbol, it is not just imaginary. It is imaginal in nature. It, it makes, it affords, right, the true development. It affords the core of the being mode. The being mode is not about having things, it is about becoming someone. There's a deep interconnection between the imaginal, the divine double, gnosis, and the being mode. So, the angel in Corbin is a representation of the divine double. For and now, the thing to note is that for Corbin, every, everything has an angel. Right? Because it's not only the agent that is being transformed, it is also the arena. Your world is also being opened up. And aspects of being are disclosing themselves that otherwise would not disclose themselves. Every object is shining and is also withdrawing into its mystery. Everything is a thing beyond itself. And so you are a thing beyond yourself as an agent, coupled to sets of things beyond themselves as an arena, and you are both going through this coupled process. That's what Corbin means by the angelic aspect, or the angelic order of being. Now, given the way I've tried to interpret, and I think explain, but not, I hope, dismissively explain away Corbin, I would want to make, I, I want to note, you know, as I've said, there's deep connections between Gnosis and this divine double, between the being mode, between self-transcendence, between all of this. I'm a little bit unhappy with Stang's term, though, the divine double, because it seems to bind us a little too much um, to the mythos and the, uh, the teleological uh, simple narrative, stru narrative structure that I think doesn't adequately capture everything that we can see in this, uh, uh, in, in the work of L.A. Paul and Callard and the response to uh, Strawson's problem, right? right? And also the, the notion of divine seems to bind this um, to theism, which is problematic given its deep connections to Gnosis and the Gnostics, and also it precludes non-theistic uh, cultures or, or sets of religions from having something like this, whereas I think you can readily see the divine double in Buddhism where it's talked about the Buddha nature and the, the Buddha nature is very much the aspired self but things have a Buddha nature. The Buddha nature is both the, 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 their ultimate real nature but not their conventional nature or you can see the same thing in Vedanta when there is a deep identity, perhaps, uh, between the Atman and Brahman. What I'm pointing out is that this way of talking about aspiration can be seen clearly in non-theistic religions. It's clearly in Gnosticism, which I think is very much should not be interpreted uh, theistically. I've tried to show you that. It's clearly the case in Neoplatonism. Uh, Stang makes this case for it both in Plotinus and uh, 
uh, aspects, the, at least the Neoplatonic aspects of Dionysus. And so, and that's clearly not uh, theistic. So I'm not going to use the, divine, the term divine double anymore because I want to try and separate this idea uh, from its commitment to theism. And so I'm going to call this symbolic self, I'm going to call it the sacred second self. The sacred second self. Um, it gives me even more alliteration than divine double, so I win, right? Um, so, <laughs> so the idea of the sacred second self. Perhaps, perhaps this is a way, wow, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, how, what I'm going to do right now. But I'm going to do it because I have an inkling of its value. <laughs> um, perhaps the notion of the sacred second self is a way of bringing back the idea of having a soul. In fact, that's even the wrong way of putting it. Perhaps that's part of what I'm trying to transgress against. Your sacred second self is the soul that you are becoming, the soul that you are aspiring through and to. And perhaps that is a way of bringing it back. The reason I raise this is because that will allow us to make a bridge to another one of the prophets, Carl Gustav Jung. Probably a good time to break now, so we're going to do that. Let's rehash. Uh, okay, so um, we're S1 and S2. Um, yes. are what they are so yeah one s1 self one being temporal temporal temporally prior and s2 being normatively prior uh, primary or primary sorry primary. thank you yeah 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 so not coming before but the the primary the, mm -hmm. the first importance mm -hmm. um, we, we have all these teleological explanations that can also thwart us we want something that's open-ended enough that it can be understood regardless of one's religion or, you know, even atheistic orientation to reality. Yeah, so we, need to, we need to help marry, remarry science and spirituality. That is a part of this process so we that we are engaged in. Yeah. S1 has causal power. Yes. It, ca it causes the S2, and S2 has the normative authority. Its authority gives um, justification to the usage of, well, not, I don't want to say usage, but the, you know, the, the, causation of s1's action mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it is the ultimate outcome so it is the normative authority so the question is is how how does one relate to the non this not existing now authority mm -hmm. like how do mm -hmm. we do that how do we have a relationship with that how do we respond to that right um, so and here's an idea so when self one aspires to be like socrates or jesus or buddha yeah. for instance how do we d relate with that self too that doesn't yet exist but has this authority as far as an idea of an ideal? Yeah. So the self too that we aspire to, it's not a logically related or relate relatable thing. Mm -hmm. My representation, though, of it has it actually does have to be something that can actually help me. Yeah. So a symbol is one way that we yeah. can put these In internalization of yes internalization of a symbol or an archetype yeah. can put it this together in a participatory relational way for us so so we have on one side um the internalization and that's the self side 
um, participating into indwelling in the world and that indwelling in the world through the symbolic self shines back into eternalization. Um, so you, you could say like, okay, so like with the, you know, the internalizing Socrates, you, you mm -hmm. internalize this other person and you participate in that, in seeing the world through their eyes, seeing the world being through the their way eyes, that participating in the world, feeling the way eyes. that they weren't, that they and then have been revelations or of things being revealed to you through that symbolic self revelations of the in. being mode. So that's yeah. why this is a being mode way of a, of realizing so that higher self. Essentially, uh, this divine double is a mythos way to capture this process of yes. in internalization, participation, in indwelling, and then the symbolic self shining back through. Um, yes. So, yes. so the way he broke it down, I, li I really like that. It was just a tiny little graphic, but it made it all come together. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this U box, this S1U box, and then this greater one that is still you, but it's greater around you. Yeah. And the divine double carries you into this greater you. Um, or, well, it carries you by shining from the greater you. Mm -hmm. And the this indwelling gnosis, this knowing, you know, so I'm embodying Socrates, I'm working through it. The knowing, you know, what would, you know, what would Jesus do mm -hmm. by doing it? Affords us to move towards it. The greater you. And mm -hmm. then that symbolic self greater you then the imaginal you, shines back again the divine further, w even more shines so back. now and so then so you, it's recursive and all with so it's it's imaginal gnosis and being mode wrapped mm -hmm. in being mode mm, yeah in the being perspective yeah. um so corbin's idea of this angelic aspect um, he had this, you know, everything, everything has an everything angel. has this beyond itself thing going on, this constant ancient arena back mm -hmm. and forth. And he, that's what he's referring to as the divine double, right? Yes. But yes. Verveke has an issue with the word divine. And actually, I kind of do, too, because, you know, in, in modern language, the way we use it right now, you say divine, they're like, oh, you're just getting into some, you know, woo woo spiritual stuff or crystal gripping or whatever. Um, Right. You know, yep. so like I can understand that. And also it doesn't, you know, it, 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 it's not graspable by people who are atheists mm -hmm. or, you know, like things like that too. And, you know, Verbeke's idea is to make this. Yeah. It could be graspable, but not graspable in an appreciable way, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we do need shared language between well, science grasp and the various conforming to it. That's how, right. If, if you don't have the idea of this divine thing, how can you down, form how do you with conform it? to yes. it? Like you would around a cup, grasping yes. the cup. How can we truly grasp and afford one so another's growth? He has the uh, sacred second self, the SSS. Yes. yes. A, a way of bringing back the notion of a soul th that you are becoming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's powerful. It's not just, oh, you have, you have a soul. You, know, you are becoming more of a soul. That's right. I like that. Yes, I the really soul, like that because... The I've, soul you are becoming, that you're aspiring to and through... Yeah, that's a great way of bringing back the idea of having a soul. It's like a, it's it's this ultimate potential that we are becoming and aspiring towards. Yeah, well, it, that it, lives through it's us. It's not the having of the soul; it's the being. It's the of being the of soul. it. It's the aspiring too that allows us that relation with it. 
So, and what we're doing is going through this internalize, internalization, which reorders our psyche to other ways of being in the world. And this is what helps us afford growth through the being mode. So this improvement becomes a recursive participatory relation. And, and you're right, you know, that divine double being a mythos way of expressing this was a beautiful effort at helping describe how self-realization can even be pro possible. Yeah. But it doesn't always include the participation. It can be more passive or receptive. And that's certainly what it's turned into. In fact, now it's just we're told what we're supposed to believe and then we think that faith is now reciting that belief back out to the world, well, proclaiming. It's not just something shining down. It's also it's, you participating and growing. It needs to be like an orientation power. towards life, a way of being like trying to embody, internalize the way of Jesus. That is what it yeah. is to be a Christian, not that if you believe this or that. Your well, belief is just what, it's just a way of projecting your ideas out into the world, but how are we actually being? Yeah. So that's the question. And I, I, I'm, I applaud Verveke in that effort as well. I appreciate that he's doing that. As much as the term divine double has a nice ring to it, um, I like that we're resurfacing a sense of the sacred regardless. So the fact that he uses the word sacred, I think it's so important, it's key, and it's it still can be appreciated yeah. from the theist or the non-theist or atheist perspective. Yeah, so, so like, you know, there. you can... You can have something that is sacred, like or a representation of mm -hmm. the sacred. Something that draws sacred. us out of ourselves, yeah. you know, towards it. Well, into so, a more encompassing frame. I like how we put that. It, 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 so I guess that's what you know, like um, religious iconography is doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, like you know, that wooden carved cross or you know, Mother Mary or whatever, and the wood itself isn't. The sacred thing, the you know, the the paint that goes on it isn't maybe not even the process of the artist making it, mm -hmm. but all those things and what it's talking about, what mm -hmm. it's talking about, you know, there's all be, of those things are sacred. In fact, it's the the angel. Well, in say it's sacred by the like the, in this in case everything. the S two is what's justified. You know, the mm -hmm. greater the greater self we're aspiring to be, or the greater thing we're aspiring to understand is giving validity to say the wood or the process or yes. the whatever it is yes. so it's not inherently in the wood um you know it's not inherently you know the, the self isn't that you know like you know I'm, you I'm can't just like hold that wooden cross and have it yeah and have with the the meaning of the cross points and i guess in the way of the self it's like this self that you are now is not the sacred thing um it it's it's where you're going and the mm. it's the participatory relation with and life it's shining back that is on the sacred you or yeah. you shining through and participating in it that is the sacred aspect yeah. so it's not yeah. separate from you because it can't be a separate self we still right. have that requirement yes it has to still be the same self mm -hmm. now we're locked into the perception of time so we see it as two like if you if you measured you know here and then here on a time plot well they seem separate but it's not it's it's the same thing it has to be the self that same thing or else it's not self you know improvement or self growth or self creation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it would just be something else right? right right um i like how we described how the agent and the arena are both growing each other they're mm -hmm. both shining more of each other yeah you know the more that the agent 
conforms to the arena, the more the arena now is able to show back to the agent. And now the agent is able to do more in the arena. Mm -hmm. And then that affords the arena to stretch out in new ways. And they continue reciprocally refining and growing and expanding one another. A coupled process. Yeah. The angelic order of being. Which is along this... Everything has an angel. That's such a cool idea. But that coupling thing, you know, like we've been talking about, you know, every processes, agent arena, Mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff. There's always seems to be this coupling and back and forth and, you know... Always a reciprocal relationship, right? And mutual disclosure, which is one of the definitions of love we went over. Yes, even things that are in what we would call an opponent process are actually in a process of calibration, of refining, of focus, you know? Of tuning in. It's all about attunement. Yeah. Attuning more and more to this moment, to the state of being itself. Well, like, uh, to go back to, like, way back um, in episodes to the story of, you know, the Buddhist story of, you know, a master musician and his uh, protege on a boat, you know, going mm-hmm. up the going up the river and he's teaching, yes. the, you know, the kid, oh, well, you got to toot it right, not too tight, tight and not too not loose. Not too loose. It, just right there you know that like so that but that was the eureka moment yeah. in the story of buddha i love that yeah. yeah and you know so you can't say in the case of buddha he can't neglect path. everything so you know neglect all self because you're just a pure ascetic you know yeah because that yeah. in itself is is still being this self-driven he's trying to get away from. Yeah, you're really denying attached to the idea of, yeah you're denying the self thing. and making the self even stickier yeah. right and, but it can't the be to just it. completely go out and be gluttonous and do whatever either no. in that case. And, and that's where it's the tuning between the, the two. And not all points in time meet the same tune, if you will. That's where optimization, according to uh, environment, well, environmental uh, factors, right? You know, like say your um, autonomic nervous system. You don't want to be too aroused while you're trying to go to sleep, but you don't want mm-hmm. to be too sleepy when you're trying to go hunt something to eat. At each point in time, there's an appropriate um, optimized amount of arousal that you should yes. have, right? Mm-hmm. So this divine double relationship or uh, the sacred second... Oh, man. Vegas. Sacred second self. The yeah. sacred second self. The triple S. Um relationship with the self you are there you know where you started from at some points in time you're probably going to be more in the indwelling end of things there's other times you're more you know having the shining shine down upon you times Uh, same thing with scaling up you know and scaling down whether it's meditation or contemplation yes yes you know this this whole series has been an attempt to create balance through all these topics and ideas and this long conversation people have been happening since the first caveman decided to put on the heaven elk he just killed and pretend to be it while his buddies pretend to kill him to show people what happened at the hunt. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> that, so that they can be... It's been a conversation be, since then. So they can be yeah. that way too. So it has yeah. to be a participatory relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. balance is, you know... You can't just want to have a spear and think that you're going to be a good hunter. you got to be able to understand how to participate in that arena yeah yeah and, and so someone's showing you teach, a, a symbolic yeah. narrative yeah. that's how we learned yeah. I, so I, he also points out of course how this idea of aspiration it's 
been already developed in Buddhism and Vedanta. You know, in Buddhism, it's the Buddha nature, the ultimate attainment. In Vedanta, it's the relation of the Atman with the Brahman. So like Brahman being like God mind and Atman being like the highest realized expression of self. So it's clearly in both non-theist and theistic traditions. Uh, and why not find a way to help talk about this that is not going to be theist or purely an atheist, but is open ended for enough for both of them. Well, we're, you know, we're to be able to learn how to encapsulate now and build on together. What he's trying to do is, you know, get everybody to start awakening from this meaning crisis. Yeah. Not just regardless of what you believe, you yeah, what your belief system you is. Know. Yeah. Understand what these paths to these various, you know, it's the same mountaintop, but there's all these various paths and why are they there? What about them has worked for us in the past? How can we optimize our relation to them? How can we recapitulate a relationship with the ineffable and become the highest, greatest versions of ourselves and create a, a better world for those that come after us and hey, those alive today? And if you're super selfish, at least just create a better world for you so it's less hassle, huh? <laughs> hey, hey, you know, right. well, I was thinking about. I guarantee you, you won't be the same selfish self that you were before if you really, you know. Um, uh, if you really take it on aspirationally, path, yeah, 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 yeah. If you start well, walking the path, yeah, it, right. you know that is uh, inspired by those greats that have come before us, these yeah, well, Jesuses and Buddhas and Socrates and who nots and whatnots. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, we got a. Looks like about 20 minutes left here, 18 ish. So we're going to jump on back in. In fact, that's even the wrong way of putting it. Perhaps that's part of what I'm trying to transgress against. Your sacred second self is the soul that you are becoming, the soul that you are aspiring through and to. And perhaps that is a way of bringing it back. The reason I raise this is because that will allow us to make a bridge to another one of the prophets, Carl Gustav Jung. Um, because this notion of a relationship to a sacred second self that is perhaps um, what we were always talking about when we invoked the word soul is central to Jung's work. One of Jung's crucial texts for representing the meaning crisis and linking it to his particular um, psychology is the book Modern Man in Search of a Soul. So the response to the meaning crisis is that modern man has lost his soul. Now that doesn't mean that a ghost has slipped free of a person's corpus and is somehow floating around um, untethered. Jung is trying to talk about, the. I'm going to argue, the loss of a real relationship to the sacred second self that is needed for responding to the meaning crisis. And there are deep connections, therefore, between Jung and Corbin. And this is not just similarity of argumentation. Jung and Corbin had, deep, had a deep interaction, a deep influence on each other. They met regularly together at the Uranus conferences and discussed. As I mentioned, I find that Corbin is more responsible to that relationship than Jung. Corbin talks more often about it explicitly whereas I do not see Jung giving enough credit uh, to the influence of Corbin on his thinking. Nevertheless, we can move between Corbin and Jung by picking up on this idea of your relationship to your sacred second self. 
And I think this is the best way to understanding the process that is central to Jung's whole notion of, it's both a notion of development and a notion of self-transformation and a notion of how to fundamentally respond to the meaning crisis. This is Jung's notion, of course, of individuation. So, how do we get to this notion? Well, we're going to get to this no Notice that each thinker gets in into it in a different way. And what Jung is doing, and he's, right, he's picking up on something that is not, it's not really present in Heidegger. It's present in Corbin, but it's present more implicitly than explicitly. And this is psychology, right? The, the, the processes within the psyche uh, that are conducive to responding to the meaning crisis. And by individuation, Jung, and he clearly uses this adjective to describe it, describes this as a psychological process. Now the way to get a little bit clearer about how Jung is using the notion of psychological is right, to contrast him to the most important influence on him, his progenitor Freud. And I'm not going to get into a deep analysis of Freud, I, I, right? Um, that's, that would be too far afield. Uh, Freud is a titan. Even if 95% of what Freud has said is wrong, it doesn't matter. He gets to be in the Hall of the Immortals because he came up with the idea of the unconscious. He comes up with the idea of that it's neither nature nor nurture, but the interaction between them in stages of development. These, these are all just, they become so deeply interwoven with our fundamental way of trying to understand and theorize about ourselves. Like I said, uh, so Freud is a titanic figure. However, let's pick up on the difference. In, in what fundamental way did Jung's model of the psyche different from, differ from Freud's? So here I'm picking up on work done by Paul Ricoeur in his book on Freud and some work uh, done by Storr, um, Anthony Storr, in his work on Jung in an important contrast. So Freud ultimately has what has been called a hydraulic model of the psyche. It's a, so the psyche is basically a Newtonian machine, like a steam engine. Things are under pressure, and the pressure has to be relieved, and it drives and sort of pushes various processes into operation. So uh, Freud, and, and of course this makes perfect sense, uh, Freud has a, a Newtonian machine hydraulic model of the psyche. Jung ultimately rejects that, and this is uh, more in store than in Ricoeur because Ricoeur is uh, primarily concentrating on Freud. <clears throat> but what Storr argues is that, and this becomes clear in the, in the language and the metaphors that Jung uses, Jung replaces that hydraulic metaphor with an organic metaphor. He sees the psyche as a self-organizing dynamical system, ultimately as an autopoetic being. So he sees the psyche as going through a, sort of a complex process of self-organization and that you have to understand individuation as this kind of organic, self-organizing, organic, self-organizing self uh, process that you neither make nor receive uh, but you participate in. Okay, so this takes us to one of the quintessential notions uh, from Jung. Jung gives a psychological analog of Plato's idea of the form, a structural functional organization. 
This is the archetypes, the archetypos. These, right, people, people should go back. Arche, foundational, like in archaeology, getting to the origins and the foundation. Typos, the patterns. So the archetypes are the, are, are, are the formative founding patterns of the psyche. These are the ways in which, these are the structural functional organizations by which the selfie, by which the psyche self-organizes. The archetypes are therefore very much psychological versions of the platonic forms. And Jung is much better at acknowledging Plato's influence than Freud is, for example. So the archetypes are not images. Right? The archetypes are not images. Right? You have to take the images and treat them in an imaginal fashion, not as imaginary things you possess in your mind, but as imaginal things that are leading you into, into the aspirational process of individuation. Think of the archetypes more the way we talked about earlier. They're, they're, they are systems of constraints. They are virtual engines that regulate the self-organization of what is salient to us. So if the hero archetype is active in me, it's not, it doesn't mean that I have, I'm carrying around in my head images of the hero. It means that, right, this is an imaginal relationship in which I'm anagogic, my salience landscaping is being transformed, so I'm anagogically interacting with the world and undergoing aspirational self-transformation so that I'm becoming more and more heroic. Think of the archetypes much more adverbally than, you, than adjectivally. An archetype is a way in which you are anagogically coming to be not something in you, right, that you possess and reflect upon. So, Jung argues that all of these, like the psyche as a whole, these archetypes, insofar as they are virtual engines of self-organizing processes, are autopoetic. They have a life to them, a life to them. These archetypes are the way and I hear this word deeply, way as method and path of development. The archetypes are the way the psyche makes itself as a living organism. That's what I mean. Think of archetypes in a deeply adverbial fashion rather than archetypal. Uh, sorry, adjectival. Sorry, that was a mistake. So, where, where, where's the sacred second self? Well, Let's talk about the ego and what Jung called the self. And he's influenced, right, by Vedanta. This is the egoic self and this is Atman, right? And the, and the notion of the self with the... See, that was such a bad choice in some ways because un, unless you've done all the stuff we've just done and talked about the relation between right, self one and self two and all, right, you don't, and you, unless you've got the aspirational sense of what a self is. If you, if you come to Jung with just decadent romanticism, you're going to hear, ah, but this, this, is my, this is my inner true self that I have to be true to. You're going to relate to this, the self adjectivally from the having mode, very great temptation to get into 
right? Narcissism, right? I understand why Jung did this because he, he, he capitalizes the S because he's trying to point towards, I would argue, the sacred second self, right? So the ego is the archetype of the conscious mind. The ego is the virtual engine that regulates the self-organization of the conscious mind. What's the self? Well, it's kind of the archetype of the archetypes. It's like Plato's notion of the good, which is the form for how to be a form, the eidos of the eidos. It is the virtual engine regulating the self-organization of the psyche as a whole. It is the principle, the self is the principle of autopoiesis itself. It's the ultimate virtual engine that constellates all the other virtual engines so that the psyche can continue its process of autopoetic self-organization. Remember, when a system is self-organizing, its function and its development are completely merged. It develops by functions and it functions by developing. So this functional model is simultaneously a developmental model. That's what makes it aspirational. It is simultaneously functional and developmental, right? So one of the things you can do is you can set up an interaction with these imaginal symbolic entities, the archetypes, and that interaction can be internalized into the perspective. So I can interact with the hero archetype or the shadow archetype, and that will actually be internalized into the way the ego self-organizes. Ultimately, that can, be, can become part of this, the dialogue between the ego and the self, what Jung calls the axis mundi, the axis of the world. Very, maybe, overwrought way of putting it, but in some ways I understand what he's trying to get at. This is the process, right? As I dialogue through the archetypes with the self, the ego's perspectival knowing and its participatory being is being fundamentally altered. This is the individuation of the ego. The, the ego individuates through its dialogue. Notice that anagogic, resonant way of talking. It's dialogue with the sacred second self. And notice ultimately how that falls back to Plato and Socrates, this notion of dialogue. This, of course, is the basis of Jung, and notice the similarity here again, of Jung's deep, right, deep criticism of literalism and fundamentalism. Because, of course, the imaginal, right, the archetype as imaginal, sits right here. It mediates between these. Right. Why is Jung so critical of literalism and fundamentalism? Because it is to reduce the imaginal nature of the archetypes into simply being imaginary, it is to lose the being mode and the simply having of subjective representations rather than engaging in the process of individuation. Right? It's a form of inflation in which the ego pretends that it is sufficient unto itself and tries to take on the, right, the role of the complete role of the self, tries to just have an identity rather than continually becoming 
in the process of individuation. It is deeply disturbing to see someone who is, would claim to be committed to a Jungian approach being deeply enmeshed or involved with proponents of literalism or fundamentalism. This would be, I believe, a deep form of self-contradiction. What's my main criticism of Jung, which will then allow me a counter-criticism to Corbett? Both, and this is, a, these, this is a criticism that Corbin makes of Jung, but it's also independently a criticism that Buber, the existentialist, the person who talked about I it and I thou, and picked up on the difference between the being mode and the having mode as well. Right? This also converges with the criticism that Buber made of Jung. Jung, uh, Jung understands all of this, and that's how I've explained it to you, as intrapsychically happening within the psyche. Now, my friend and colleague Anderson Todd tells me that towards the end, Jung seems to be breaking out of this purely psychological way of talking. Right? Uh, but, for most of his writing, Jung understands all of this, and this is, of course, this is problematic, right? And this is what Corbin was trying to get him to see. He was understanding all of this as subjectively. His Kantianism was making him see this as all happening in a very deep sense within the mind. The, the archetypes are understood ultimately for a very long time in Jung as subjectively rather than transjectively. And because of this, and then this is where Buber's criticism bites into Jung, Jung misses all of the existential modes that Buber wants to talk about. Jung can't talk about you know, the having and the being modes because he's, he doesn't have a way of representing the transjective relationship. For Corbin, Jung seems to be reducing the imaginal to the imaginary. And for Corbin, this is a mistake because the mystical for Corbin doesn't just disclose the depths of the psyche. The mystical also discloses the depths of the world in an integrated, coordinated fashion. That's because Corbin is ultimately Neoplatonic and not Kantian. This is why I said if you don't understand Kant, you don't get Jung. Now, in fairness to Jung, Jung can say, but what's missing from Corbin is a psychology. What's missing from Heidegger is a psychology. How does all of this existential, ontological, neoplatonic stuff play out within the psyche? If you're going to talk to me about internalizing, I get it. I, I'm answering on behalf of Jung. Jung can say, I get it. I leave off the indwelling in the world that Corbin right, is pointing to and Heidegger has been pointing to. But what Jung can say is, yeah, but you haven't told me what the internalization looks like. How does the imaginal get internalized into the depths of my psyche? So what I'm suggesting to you, this is neither Corbin nor Buber, nor is it right, Jung. But Berveke is arguing to you that you can integrate the three of them together, and then you get something much better than either Jung or Corbin or Buber. I want to take a look next time at somebody who shares a lot with all three of these, Corbin, Jung, and Buber, and like them is deeply influenced 
by Heidegger, and that's Paul Tillich. Thank you very much for your time and attention. time doing that Crap. i know i know <laughs> we're gonna have to we'll miss it i know we're gonna have to use the, use that song for uh our future meaning making copyright strikes from facebook and youtube and everybody uh that song might be uh um what do you call it when it's uh just open for anybody to use um yeah we just have to find a version of it that isn't well we can make our own it's with like an uh, old tchaikovsky or something yeah, we can make our we can make our own. I'll play it on the piano, and and we can do meow effects over top of it and make it sound epic. Yes. Yeah, we'll just make Ooh, our we'll own do, version. We'll do the whole thing in meows. Meow, meow. Yes, meow, yes, yes. Meow, meow. meow we're gonna meow. need cat and dog characters. And then it'll be like ten years down the line, and people are like, "What the hell is with the <laughs> with this <laughs> outro?" <laughs> you had to. I'm alright with that. Yeah. It'll be our inside joke. All right, so where where was the break? The break, so young. Modern Man in Search for a Soul. I have this book. It's been a while since I've flipped through it. But this this is a, a great read of Young, I think. I like the way he breaks them down. Corbin's interesting. I'd, I'd like to get into Corbin. I also have Tillich's book on being that I've been listening through, and it's excellent, highly recommended. I just got that on Audible. Shout outs to Audible. So, uh, yeah, we need uh, this sacred second self in the meaning crisis, and we need to understand and have a relationship with our sacred second self if we're going to get out of this. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, yes, because that's what Young's saying. We've had a, a loss of a real relationship with what is, and Verveke is noting that with what is needed for solving this meaning crisis, a notion of development, self-transformation, and a response to the meaning crisis. Um, and what Jung termed individuation, this was his approach, yeah. the process in our psyche, that the processes in our psyche that are conducive to helping us ameliorate our sense of meaninglessness and belonging and all of that, all the def defuncts that can happen in our psyches mm -hmm. so Jung's very much coming from a psychological perspective how, how does he differ from Freud so we go over how Freud saw the mind as like a hydraulic through a hydraulic model like yeah, mechanistic you know, Newtonian you, you can't you can't pleasure your wife in bed because you have arrows for your mother you know yeah this right yeah. happens to that this yeah. force pushes upon that force and out comes that yeah and Jung thought about yeah. it much more organically and yeah, his yeah. his metaphor was that the psyche is a self-organizing system, and as Verbeke puts it, self-organizing dynamical system that we neither make or receive but participate in. Yeah, so and that would be auto-poetic as far as the mm -hmm. vocabulary goes. Yes. Self-organizing system is auto-poetic. Yeah, I love that term. Um, so the archetypes. Arch yeah, that's the psychological analog of Plato's forms are the archetypes. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. And arc meaning foundation and type or typos meaning pattern so these are like the formative foundational framing patterns that our psyche utilizes 
So, um, but archetypes are not images. They have mm -hmm. to be treated as imaginal patterns that lead us through an aspirational process. So they are like a symbol, yeah. a hero archetype. For instance, he brings up my salience landscape is being transformed so that I can take part in heroism itself. You, you could, you could think of them as like salience revealers or like even like filters on a lens. Like, you know, mm. if, you're, if you're looking at, you know, like say you don't, uh, or let's say reverse filters, right? So you see everything black and white, but then you add like red to it. And then suddenly the things that are red pop out at you. You could see an archetype of something like that, a lens you look through that changes, that shifts, say, the hue or the quality of something. So then um, important things to this process become more salient. More salient, right. So if you're, you know, say, a young man trying to, conquer you know the shit in the world as well as the shit within yourself the dragon if you will you might use a hero archetype and to operate embed that through. and then yeah. embody it and then bring that out into the world and try to be that mm -hmm. and see how it works for you and then if it's a good archetype that you're holding on to it will shine back on you and you see the results of it and then you can continue the process mm -hmm. and and fine-tune it so yes because they should have a life to them yeah and not not be not something that we possess and reflect on, but something that we are participating with, yeah, participating so through. Adverb versus adjective, you know. That's it's right, adverbial. You yeah. come to be, mm -hmm. um, opposed to just something that's in you. Um, yes, yes. So, so the ego and the, and the capital S self. Real quick, let me make, before, let me make okay. sure I have uh, his up. Ah, these so these archetypes are the way the psyche makes itself as a self-organizing system. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So ego. Yeah. So the ego, and then the capital S self. So ego, as in the egoic sense of self, one self-image, is one way, or the psychological sense of self. Uh, the separate thing. The separate too, thing that we think will. we have, yeah. or or the thing that we think we are, um, and then the capital S self, which is can also be described as like the Atman which is like the ultimate or the Buddhist idea of ultimate self. Yeah. So basically the ego would be the archetype of the conscious mind. Mm -hmm. um, this, you know, so it's the thing in which we're looking through to gain salience of what's important. Right? Yeah. And this self regulating mm -hmm. psyche. Mm -hmm. And then the, the capital S self is the virtual en engine that re regulates the formation of the psyche as a whole mm -hmm. and all other virtual yeah. engines so yeah it's the ultimate one's yeah. creating salience and one is regulating what it you know like yeah yeah the ego just regulates the self-conscious is the virtual engine that self-regulates no, the conscious that's, mind that's self that's capital s self. egoic self egoic self is just the archetype of the conscious mind that lens in which we look through right Yes, that's the self-regulating psyche, the virtual engine that self-regulates the conscious mind. That that the Atman is the ultimate virtual virtual engine yeah. that encompasses all of that. Yeah. That is function and that allows this actually moon, mundi uh, relationship between the ego and the self to be mm -hmm. both functional and developmental at once. Yeah, so and that's what makes it aspirational. So you need you, it. It's not just so. I guess um, you know the. Freud's argument against other arguments is, you know, it limits you to just the ego self, mm -hmm. this archetype of the conscious mind looking through it and doesn't necessarily account for this regulatory other self. 
if I'm getting that right. I, I didn't have his critique. Yeah, so out, the, the way he puts it that I have here is the ego individ individuates through its dialogue with the sacred second self. Yeah. And that is the, that there is the basis of Jung's criticism for literalism and fundamentalism. It's that people are relating with Im the images, archetypes as images, that we just basically imaginary imaginarily like subjectively interpret through yeah. but these imaginary subjective interpretations fail us so the archetype is what mediates between to reduce yes, between the, the the ego and the self yes so yes. the there's the ego that is a, an archetype of a kind of of the conscious mind and then there's the different arc like different archetypes we use these different platonic forms we use um to um facilitate the self the capital s self and the ego mm -hmm. so yes to regulate and to view and to regulate mm -hmm. and to view and to regulate the view and yeah to yeah and so to to reduce them to imagination or subjective interpretations that's why we're failing at it yeah. it's not just an image uh so young's uh, uh that you believe in criticism of the mechanical uh hydraulic idea is it stops at like the ego it's just mm -hmm. the ego that moves everything and the ego is just trying to have an identity rather than become it's not interested in a process of becoming it just wants to have yeah. that's that that's the having mode yeah and you know it is if it is an archetype of the conscious mind it is trying to find what is most salient mm -hmm. and if i guess you know if you become obsessed with your own ego yourself lowercase s ego self becomes mm -hmm. most salient yeah right of course yeah and then there's no regulation at all and then it's an inward spiral of you know uh, well we have words for those people that's why cultures have invented mindfulness practices yeah. and contemplation and prayer and things for eons because we need some way of of checking that so the main criticism of criticism of young that verveke uh points out and that you know others have spoken on uh, is that he seems to understand all of this subjectively himself. Yeah, it, 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 what is it, In, intrapsychically? So with only within the psyche. Yeah, so he's very much subjective rather than transjective. He missed the existential modes of having and being. He didn't have the terminology for them, mm -hmm. and so he, he missed that. So he seems to reduce the imaginal to the imaginary. And Corbin himself as for vicky notes he misses the psychology like how yeah, does it actually how, play out in the psyche that how, indwelling yeah, that's process how, like, and, you know young was kind of like okay well all that you know arena stuff but what you know what is the you know like what's going on what's going in on here? inside you know, going to, on in the head, to, you know? to make that happen yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. now we're going to look at in our next episode how we might be able to integrate jung corbin and boober together yep so that's yeah, that's, uh, man. All right, that's well, that's about as much as I gathered. It's another one of those episodes that I'll probably get a lot more when I do the rewatch. But it's still, like we were talking about in, in between during some breaks, um, it really is starting to make a lot more sense. Now, everything else, you know, there's there's still so much to, to garner from each episode. But all of the little puzzle pieces are now fitting together, you know. We well, just turn up the definition a little bit and, and dial into some of those questions that aren't quite clear, but 
We've got the basic grammar well, down for enough to continue the on. Basic with the basic grammar logic. And, and the logic down, and, and now just learning the rhetoric. Of and, it. and well, they're all also self. Re, you know, they're they're each helping each other as mm -hmm. well because at, you know you learn the grammar, okay, and then you start to get the logic. Some of the grammar goes away because there's just so many words, but you still have this inkling of what it is in your head and how it all fits together. But then through practicing rhetoric, as we are trying to explain our notes and all this stuff, you can recapture some of the lost grammar and logic as yes, along the way. Yes, and then it, yeah. it keeps going. You know, keeps going. yet again. It's it's I guess proof to this concept that that uh, is really getting at here. Mm -hmm. That you know, it's the, this the cyclical process. Um, and you know, I would say we're aspiring to be more learned and astute and understanding of this kind of stuff, as well as make meaning in our own life. And uh, my, we're trying to cultivate wisdom, baby. My S one, uh, what a year or so ago, you know, justified. Well, your S one years ago was justified in getting my S one to do this after pestering for me for like a year. Because there's that, an aspirational <laughs> inkling, <laughs> yeah, that, that this you know? was, <laughs> and that this would that, be something you, know, you would appreciate and gain from. In, in hindsight, you know, I guess, yeah, uh, this S, you know, I, I don't mean to sound egoic, but this S2 self right now, in perspective of the S1 self back then, you know, okay, well, I was justified to get my crap together and enjoy taking notes again and, oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, trying to reason my way through the high minded, sometimes convoluted, but only convoluted because, you know, when you're new to, newer to a certain end of a of the, the big conversation we've been hap happening at, uh, having as a species it can seem convoluted but as you mm -hmm. learn the grammar and the logic behind it and start talking to people about it it all becomes a little less convoluted unless mm -hmm. certain ends are convoluted but we've talked about these things you know it, well this it, is through all this history we've gone through it yeah. wasn't saying these guys were right these guys were right these guys were right or wrong. It was no, well, it's just been here, a very comprehensive, this, yeah. purposefully in-depth yeah. inquiry into how we may awaken as a species, yeah. you know, understand what this meaning crisis is, how it came about, and how we may, uh, how we may utilize wisdom as a way to ameliorate that meaning crisis and bring about a better world and bring about transformation within ourselves. I should have said that the other way around. Because I do believe that it is the greatest, m most long-term, you could say, effective way to change the world, if we're going to speak on these things at all, um, which is a bit presumptive. But the notion, the inkling is there that we can change this world from the inside out. That is going to be the best way to do it. Because if we had a revolution tomorrow in every country and everyone put in their ideal government in place, wouldn't it just become corrupt all over again? Yeah. Probably even more so because it would have learned from its mistakes well, it would, and be it, able to guard against it, future. It would have been corrupt as soon as it was put in place. Because we are, ourselves are still corrupt, corrupted yeah. and we're still sinful in, in the archery sense of that term. Yeah. Missing to, the to mark. Miss the mark of, of being present, of being here, of attuning ourselves relationally with this world. You know, we think of ourselves as separate from this world, even though we are outgrowths of it. We still call ourselves earthlings in our own language. You know, we, we know this deep down that we are intrinsically interconnected with everything and everyone, yet we think of ourselves as separate. And in this exploration into the wonder of consciousness, 
and our relationship with the world. Um, I've, I've certainly gained quite a lot as well. It's, there's a certain widening of our perspective, of our awareness when we practice being <laughs> in the being mode uh, through these archetypes and examples that we find out there of great ones uh, that came before and that are even around us today. So much thanks to John Verveke. Much, much thanks to you, brother, for yeah. joining me on this. Well, we got one more. One more, man. We're almost there, dude. I can't believe it. Thank you all for journeying along with us. Anyone that has even watched a few of these, um, I really uh, appreciate you challenging yourself because this is, you know, it's been like a weekly kind of brain exercise and like a wisdom dojo at the same time. It's, it's, I've, I've had some crazy re revelations while going through this series. So I encourage all of you that find this even remotely interested to check out John Brevake's series in totality and, uh, you know, see what you may gain out of it. If it is, you know, within your, your interest, if not, there's, there's plenty of other ways to approach how we may be in the being mode evermore each day. So, you know, whether that be stoicism or Buddhism or, Christianity or whatever it is, uh, you know, I encourage you to take that on, you know, let's be in a relation with this world and these times that we find ourselves in rather than disconnected and kind of just out there in the water thrashing about trying to get a hold of something so that we can stay afloat. Let's actually lean in. Yeah, that's all I got to say about that. Oh, yeah. Speaking of lean in, that's one of our new jams that we're going to be playing coming up on March 1st. DJ and I are in a band for any of you watching that aren't aware. And in the uh, state of West Virginia, in the town of Martinsburg, on March 1st, there's going to be our band with our newest member. So our new updated lineup is going to be in full effect. We got somebody on keys playing now and you should come out to the show and hear that and see who that is for the first time. Uh, Michael Maverick and the Chaos Effect is going to be playing, and Rattle Root is going to be playing. They're awesome. Michael Maverick is awesome, and I'm really excited to hear his new band. So it's going to be a good night at Bad Habits Bar and Grill in, in Martinsburg, West Virginia. That's Bad Habits Bar and Grill. Look up American Dharma Band on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram for more information. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I don't know if you can see this, but oh, that's great. This is the bean whose bean is in question. <laughs> it's the bean whose bean is in question. Yeah, the bean. Whose bean. <laughs> it's it's a bad drawing. Of Hold it bean. up again. Get it's get it closer, and then let the camera focus on it. I don't know if it will. There it goes. Yeah, it just came in real well. Yeah. There it is. It, that's the bean. It's a bad bean whose bean is in question. Yeah, from a previous episode, but you know that's been running through my head. Make a T-shirt out of that. I like that. I'd draw it a little bit better, but yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. He's supposed to be like, whoa. And then if I if I draw the mirror a little bit better, that he's holding. And then have it shining on him like yeah. a few lines coming out or something. And then have another you know bean face also going whoa, but slightly different. Oh so, man, you, know. you can make an animation like a, a gif of that that would just go on forever, yeah. where it like zooms into his eye and his eyes reflecting yeah. the mirror he's looking at. Oh man, and so it's like room where it just keeps I going. I think you're overestimating, yeah. overestimating my artistic capability. You could find someone that could help yeah. us do that. So, so let's say I'd be lucky if I can get one that looks okay enough to put on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some pretty uh, user friendly 
animation yeah softwares we could play around with and all right utilize all right shaw brain's getting tired we're gonna get off to sleep but appreciate you all make sure that you're giving love to john verbeke like and subscribe to this podcast if you're enjoying you can always find us on spotify apple Podcasts, everywhere podcasts are found every one of these live stream shows up after the fact on all the pod podcast networks so make sure that you uh you enjoy what we're doing smash the like smash the subscribe throw some ratings down throw some comments down feed the algorithm feed and, me uh, see more you know let's uh let's continue on guys we in this together mm-hmm. and when we're working together it's kind of buoys us you know it feels good to know there's others out there so we're uh grateful for all of you and find the others all oh. right i've been dj i've been chris we out.